Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Open in your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please stand with me as we read together the Word of the Lord. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 8. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, would you please open up your word to us and make it sweet and powerful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've come to see over many years of counseling people in the church, of preaching, of working with people in their struggles and their life, that many of our problems come from a failure to connect what most of us know conceptually and theoretically with how we actually function in our everyday lives. There's a disconnect between the idea of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And I think we have two big problems. Number one, we don't get the gospel right in the first place. Now thankfully, in in God's kindness, you had a Sunday school lesson this morning about justification, right? That, That many of you were here for. But it's a real problem that we don't really understand, we certainly don't naturally understand the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone. It goes against everything that we want to believe. We still think, even if we've heard it over and over again, we still think that God accepts us based on who we are or what we have done. And we still think that we can earn favor with God by our good performance. We still try to stand on the quality of our sanctification for our justification. We don't understand justification. We, don't, we find it very hard to believe that uh, there's this line in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60 I think it is, it says that 
God regards us as if we never had nor committed any sin. Wrap your mind around that. That is how God regards you. If that's what it means to be justified, to be forgiven of all your sins, and to be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. To be regarded by God as if you had never had nor committed any sin. We receive that gift by faith, with a believing heart. That's the truth. But we don't really get that so often. We revert back to some kind of, God will accept me if I do something. That is not the truth of the gospel. It's not to the one who works, but to him who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. To him, that will be credited as righteousness. That's our first problem. We don't get the gospel right in the first place. Secondly, even if we do get the gospel right, we completely fail at using the gospel in our everyday struggles with sin. We don't use it. We don't put the gospel to work. Even if we're very careful to get it right biblically or doctrinally or conceptually, we still keep the gospel on a shelf. Over there in our brain. Just sitting there. It has no utility. It has no practical use. There's no vital living Everyday connection between the gospel, the truth of justification, and the constant struggle with sin that is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is a constant struggle with sin. We don't get the connection between the gospel and that fight. So we may have the gospel right conceptually, right? We might be able to quote the Westminster Confession and the Catechism and the Heidelberg and all this stuff and spit the words out properly and, and really, you know, in theory understand them. But we never use the gospel in the way that God intended. We think, we think of the gospel as one thing that we understand and embrace when we first become Christians, and then we switch gears and think of the work of the Christian life as a separate thing that we have to do with our own strength and our own resources. And so different people react to that disconnect in different ways. Some of us keep trying and trying and trying and trying and failing to put our sin to death. Why? Because we do not use the tools that God has provided for us in our work of obedience and sin killing. So I used to, for two years, I, I helped build houses. Okay? And have any of you built a house? Been involved in any level of building houses, right? Yeah? So as an employee of this home builder, right, we would get, um, I had a boss, and we would get blueprints right? And the blueprints are very precise and very clear as to exactly what the work is to be done, right? Very clear. And then the boss, because he's a good boss, he gives you the, the stuff. 
that will make the house, right? The wood, the trusses, the, the drywall, all that stuff. The screws, the nails. But sometimes we're like this. We're like the guy who has the blueprints, has the boss, has the command, has the blueprints very clearly laid out, has the material sitting there on the yard, and yet he, he tries to do the work with no tools. He tries to do the work. He tries to get the nails into the wood. Now, can you imagine this? You got a box of nails. You got a pile of wood. Okay? You've got the blueprint, right? You know exactly what needs to be done. How do I get those nails into that wood? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up a nail and I'll, you know, I'll, oh, I'll try really hard to push the nail into the wood. Does that work? What are you left with? A mess. <laughs> no house and a mess and pain. You might keep trying to do this for years. Sooner or later, you're going to fall down in an exhausted heap and say to his boss, you're a bad boss. This is impossible. You tell me to do something and then you don't give me the, the things I need to do it. I can't do it. I give up. Right? I give up. All the while, there's a truck sitting there. There's a truck filled with tools. Filled with nail guns and hammers and drivers and ev saws. Everything you could possibly need to do the work. It's sitting there in the truck. The problem is not the boss. The problem is this employee, this builder, who, who has decided he's not going to use what the boss has given him to do the work. All right? That's how some of us are. And we constantly bang our head against the brick wall of God's commandments and claim that he's a bad God, he's a bad Lord, he's a bad master because he hasn't given us what we need. Some of us are different from that. Some of us just pretend there is no building to build at all. <laughs> there, is no, there is no blueprint. There is no pile of stuff there. There is no work to be done. There is no obedience to be offered. Right? We have the tools, but we don't use them because we think the boss will build the building for us. That's how we are with the gospel. Okay? We either take God's command seriously. We either take God's command seriously. I'm going to assume most of you are like this. You take God's command seriously, but you fail to use the tools that he's already provided for you in the gospel. Or we don't take God's command seriously, so we don't even see why the truck is filled with tools in the first place. What's the point? He's done it all for me. But God has given us the gospel to use. Not just to understand. Not just to believe. So that we can get into the Christian life. 
but to understand and, and believe and use in order to live the Christian life, in order, in order to do the work of the Christian life, in order to obey God and kill our sin. That's why the Holy Spirit tells us in, first, or in Romans 1.16, just listen to this. He tells us, remember, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. And the word salvation here does not mean uh, just what we've reduced it down to today. He's not just talking about this one-time event that we all kind of talk about, about, you know, getting saved. I got saved back when I was, you know, 10 years old or whatever. I got saved. That is not what he means, the fullness of what he means by the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for being born again, of course. But the gospel is also the power of God for being sanctified and ultimately for being glorified. The gospel is the power of God for all of that. So how do we use the gospel? Well, as Christians, we use the gospel in primarily two ways. All right? Two ways. To change our thinking and to change our conduct. To change our thinking and to change our conduct. So first of all, we use the gospel to change our thinking. The New Testament is filled with with truths, with implications that flow out of the truth of the gospel. They are gospel truths. They are doctrinal implications of the central truth of the gospel. Now, we can't think gospel implication truths without remembering what the central truth of the gospel is. What is the central truth of the gospel? It's what I just read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Right? Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that here it is, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's it. And that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. And so what do we have here? We have the reality of sin, right? Christ died for our sins. Our sins deserve death and punishment, righteous judgment from God. So the reality of sin. You have the necessity of divine punishment for sin, Christ, what? Died for our sins. The necessity of divine punishment and the provision of salvation through the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That is the core central truth of the gospel that everywhere in the New Testament is used to change our thinking. There are implications of that that have to shape the way we as Christians think. There's a logic, there's a way of reasoning that flows out of this central, essential reality of the gospel. 
And we have to use that central reality of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He died in my place. He took on himself the wrath of God that I deserved. We have to use that, that central truth, to radically change the way we think. The way we think is very important. It affects everything. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2? He says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to think straight. You have to think along the lines of the gospel, or you will not be transformed. You will not live in a, in a way that fits. You have to change the way you think. There's a gospel logic, right? There's a way of thinking that flows out of the gospel that has to change the way we think about everything. So for example, so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to keep you busy this morning, right? Turn to Romans for a moment. And limber up your thumbs. All right? Go to Romans 5, verse 1. We're going to learn how to think with the Apostle Paul. Romans 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, so that's that core essential truth of the gospel, Christ died for my sins, stood in my place, took the wrath of God, gives me his righteousness, okay? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we're going to take that for granted now, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, all through Romans, all through all the, the epistles, all through Scripture, God is arguing with us to change the way we think. He's, he's reasoning with us, right? That's why when you see the word therefore, all through the New Testament, for example, you think, okay, why is that there? It's, it's, a, it's an argument word. He's given you a truth and he's going to build on that and, and wrestle with you to change the way you think. And so here we are. We have been justified by faith. And so what? So what? That's nice. So what? We have peace with God. That's so what? Do you think of yourself as, as at peace with God? Flip over, no, just down the, down the page. Verse 8, verses 8 and 9, chapter 5. Look at this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, there it is. There's that central truth of the gospel again that we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for us, right? Now he's going to start using that to change the way we think. All right, much more than Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Is that how you think? Okay, I have, I've been justified. I have, therefore, I have peace with God. I've been justified. Christ died for me. I will be saved from the wrath of God. This is how I think about my future. Go down to chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Uh, 
uh, Romans 6, 10. <clears throat> for the death that he died, speaking of Christ, of course, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised again from the dead. He is now alive to God. And then he says, now, now listen, use that and think about yourself. Do you see that? Even so, consider, think about yourself in the light of what Christ has done for you, in the light of your union with him and what he's done for you, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you don't consider yourself in this way, you don't think right about yourself as a, as a child of God, you cut your legs out from under yourself. If you go around thinking, I, actually, I am alive to sin but dead to God, well, then you're done. You're done. You will never do anything that God commands you to do. Flip over to Romans 8. Therefore, sorry, you weren't there yet. Therefore, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, is this how you think about yourself? You heard the, the class, you got the Westminster Confession, you know what it means to be justified. Does that change the way you think about your relationship to God? No condemnation. Go down to verse 31. This amazing wrestling of the mind with the Apostle Paul, with you. He is wrestling you to the mat, trying to get you to think straight about the implications of the gospel. Look what he says. Verse 31, 831. What then shall we say to these things? What things? All this stuff about the gospel, about Christ, about justification. What, what shall we say to this? Well, if God is for us, who is against us? You walk around in your life thinking that God is against you, and everyone else is against you. But no, if God is for us, who is against us? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. He's not done. He who did not spare his own son, the central truth of the gospel, right? Christ died for our sins. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? No, God's stingy, God's mean, God's always just a little ticked off at me. Your thinking is not straight. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
standing in the courtroom, who will bring a charge against you that'll stick? What's the answer? What's the answer? Okay. Nobody. God is the one who justifies. Who's he who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? Nobody. It's impossible. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Are you thinking straight about all of this? Do you think about yourself in these terms? Do you think about God in these terms? Do you think about your relationship with God in these terms? If you don't, you will never have any power against your sin. The only sin that you'll ever be able to kill is a sin that you know is forgiven. So do you use the central reality of the gospel, Jesus Christ paid for your sins by living and dying in your place, do you use that central truth of the gospel to change the way you think? Are you still thinking like a pagan? Still thinking like a natural man who is always under the burden of thinking, I will only be accepted by God if I do. Then I'm accepted. I do, then I'm accepted. That's how it works. That's not what the Bible says. Are you thinking like a Christian? Jesus Christ has died in my place. He has fully satisfied the justice and the wrath of God. God has accepted the payment that Jesus made for me. Therefore, I have peace with God my Father. I can run to Him, not away from Him. Even when I sin, I can run to Him. His throne is a throne of grace. Therefore, I am free from the wrath of God. And I can obey out of my loving gratitude, out of my hope for the grace that He has promised to me and sealed for me in the blood of His own Son. Therefore, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, I am free from condemnation and from the chains of my sin. Therefore, no one can stand against me and lay a charge against me before God that can ever stick. Therefore, God will give me everything that is good for me. You can live on those truths. You can thrive on them. They will change the way you think about everything. They'll change the way you think about uh, how your friends think of you. They'll change the way you think about your cancer diagnosis. They'll change the way you deal with your parents. They'll change the way you respond to the woman walking past you who's immodestly dressed. They'll change the way you think about and how you respond to the death of your children. These are truths you can live on. But you've got to do the work. You've got to think straight.
It's not automatic. You have to actually use these implications of the gospel. You have to actively reason like this, like the Apostle Paul does. You have to let yourself be wrestled into thinking this way when you read Scripture. This is what he's doing. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's wanting to change the way you think, but you have to think. He doesn't do it for you. So, we have to use the gospel to change our thinking. Transform and renew our minds so that we can offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We have to use the gospel to change our conduct. There is a a conduct, a way of living, a manner of life that flows out of, that conforms to, that's in line with the truth of the gospel. You see this all over the place, right? Just listen to these. Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore, this is the Apostle Paul, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There is a way of walking. That means living your life, right? There's a way of living your life that fits with, that's, that's equal to, that measures up to the calling you've received. The calling you've received is you've been given sonship. You've been given adoption. You've been justified. You've been welcomed into the family of God. So live like it. Conduct yourselves in a way that's fitting for that. In Colossians 1.10, the apostle, the apostle Paul prays for us so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that measures up to him, to please him in all regards, in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul reminds the Thessalonians of this, his pastoral work with them, his personal, intimate, hard pastoral work with them. And he says this, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is is what your shepherds do for you. They exhort and encourage and implore you, just like a father would his own children. That you would what? That you would live your life in a way that matches who you are. Worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ specifically informs your behavior, your conduct, your manner of life. You could think about it like this. An observant person who knows you should be able to look at your life, look at how you relate to people and and the struggles of your life, how you relate to money, all of that stuff, and reason backwards to the gospel. Because that doesn't make any sense apart from the truth of the gospel, right? 
we, we need to always be reading our Bibles through the lens of this question. What are the connections between the truth of the gospel and my specific conduct? So for example, now here you are, get your thumbs out again, your fingers. Come along with me. What about sexual purity? What does the gospel have to do with sexual purity? Go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, 18 to 20. Remember, what is the central truth of the gospel? Christ died for your sins, right? Christ died for your sins. Stood in your place, took the wrath of God for you. Gives you his righteousness. Central truth of the gospel. What's that got to do with sexual purity? 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. What's the price? The blood of Jesus. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I don't get to do whatever I want to do naturally. I don't belong to me. I belong to him. My body belongs to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Do you see how this works? Here's another one. Go to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. How does the gospel change how you think about yourself, how you live for yourself? I mean, look, we think of how many, how much in our life is us living for ourselves? I don't care what you think, I don't care what you need. Look at what he says, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, okay, there's the connection with your thinking, right? I've been thinking about this. And it seems to me, right, I've concluded, I've come to this conclusion, he says. Having concluded this, that one died for all, Christ died for his people, therefore, all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and who rose again on their behalf. You're not going to come to that conclusion unless you're thinking. And you're not going to put this into practice in your conduct unless you're connecting the truth of the gospel, Christ died for me, therefore I'm, I died with him, and he died for me so that I would go to heaven when I die. Was that the conclusion? I mean, it's true, but is that what he's working on here? He died for me so that I would not live for myself. but for him who died and rose again on my behalf. Go down to chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8. 
There's a very practical example of the, the gospel changing, not just your thinking, but your conduct. What you actually do. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. What gracious work is he talking about? Giving. He's talking about your money. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For here we go. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich? What is that? That is the central truth of the gospel. Christ came, was made man, humbled himself, died for my sins, raised from the dead, gave me his righteousness so that I would be rich, right? Not in money, but it affects how I think about my money and what I do with it. The gospel affects what you do with your money. Christ Jesus laid aside everything. And I'm going to I'm going to hoard my money. Well, that doesn't make sense. Go to Ephesians What about how you treat one another? How about how you treat your husband, your wife, your kids, the people you work with, people you live with, people in the church? Look at Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, hold, hold on a second. I thought we were Christians. Why does he have to tell us this stuff? Yeah, we need it. <laughs> Come on now, this is us, isn't it? Run the tape back from your home when no one else is looking or listening. Run the tape back. What do you hear? What do you see? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice? Come on. He says, put it all away from you. Then he says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the central truth of the gospel, right? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Everything that comes out of that. What am I supposed to do with that? I'm supposed to live like that. Christ has forgiven me. God has forgiven me because of Christ. Therefore, earth-shaking conclusion, be kind. Stop your bitterness. Forgive. Look down to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, right down, right after this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He loves you. 
You're a beloved child, so be imitators of him and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, central truth of the gospel, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Here's a good test for you. To, to figure out if you actually believe this stuff or even understand it. How do you treat the people in your life? Right? Do you believe you've been forgiven? Do you believe you've been loved? Do you believe that God has been tender-hearted and compassionate towards you? Jesus says in the, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he says, I tell you what, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. The, the one who is forgiven has a melted heart that forgives. Well, we could go on and on. There's all kinds of passages like this. They're there for you to see and to use. All Christian behavior should flow out of the gospel, but you have to use the gospel in order to produce the behavior. It's not automatic. This is not just some shallow, you know, hey, you've got a problem with sin? All right, well, then you just, you just need to give your life to Jesus, and it'll all just go away. Oh, no. That is terrible because it completely fails or refuses to make the connections. It, 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 it fails to show us how to fight our sin. It fails to show us how to obey God by means of the gospel. And it assumes that fighting ends with knowing Jesus. You know? You're, you're struggling with sin? You just, need to, you, just need to tr you just need to come to Jesus. And it'll all just go away. What terrible advice. Don't you ever tell that to your children. The fighting begins when you come to Jesus. But the great thing about God's grace is that he does not leave you to fight on your own. He does not leave you to build the building of obedience with your bare hands. He gives you something powerful to use. He gives you the gospel, which is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for your salvation, for your sanctification. Not to make the fight or the work unnecessary, but to make the fight and the work possible. And he gives you the Holy Spirit of God. The one who gives life and power and strength. He's given you everything you need. Peter says, everything you need for life and godliness. He's given it to you. You have to use it. You have to think straight. You have to use the gospel to work. So stop leaving the gospel on the shelf.
stop leaving it in a box in the attic. It's not a relic. It doesn't belong up on the mantle in a little, little glass box. It belongs in your hands for you to use, just as God intended. Use it to change your thinking. Use it to change your conduct. Use it to fight your temptation and sin. God is not just given moralistic examples of how we should live. He has given you more than that. He has given you motivation in the gospel. He has given you power in the gospel. But all of it will lie useless on the shelf unless you make the connections. You use the gospel in order to change how you think and what you do, to motivate you and empower you to obey God and to kill your sin. That is what you want to do, isn't it? Now, some of you here don't believe a word of anything I've said. You just don't believe it. Maybe the reason, one of the reasons you don't believe it is because you've been banging your head against the wall of trying to obey. This is the danger of, of children growing up in our homes, in our Christian homes, and in our church. It's, it's easy for us as parents to show them the work, the blueprint, right? The building materials. Show them the work and to hold up for them the work and to forget about the fact that the ability to, to do the work comes from the gospel. It's the fruit of believing the gospel. Doing the work does not make you justified. Being justified makes you able to do the work, and we forget that. We don't mean to forget it, but we forget it. And we give our children the impression that we do this on our own. We focus on the fruit, the completed building, more than we focus on what God has given us to do the work. And those kids so often bang their head against the work with no power, and they leave the faith because they think this is just a big sham. I can't do this. How am I supposed to do this? I can't do this. Well, you're right, you can't. You can't do it on your own. Learn the gospel. Learn it really well. Teach it to your children. Model for them the ability to, to think straight and to work hard with gospel tools. Model that for them. Talk about it. This is what God intends. This is the point of the gospel. Not just to take you to heaven when you die, but so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ, that you would do the things he's commanded you to do, that you would put to death what is earthly in you, that you would walk and, and be like him, worthy of the gospel. This is what he wants. As he's given you everything you need to do it, 
Praise God for that. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do pray that you would um, make us think straight. Make us think like the Apostle Paul thought, like the Holy Spirit thinks. Please, Lord, let us wrestle our thinking into conformity with the truth of the gospel and let us work hard because of the grace of God at work in us. Let us work hard with the truth of the gospel, bearing fruit, striving for obedience, walking with you to please you because of all that you have done. Give us the motive and the power through these things, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.